Romans 8, verses 1 through 17. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although your bodies are dead because of sin, your spirits are alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through His Spirit which dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit Himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. I would like to begin this morning by trying to sum up or state very simply the main point of Henry Skugel's book, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And I'd like to do it first by using the old 17th century language that he used and then try to put it in more contemporary language And then go to the scriptures and unfold some of the implications of the truth as I see it in Romans 8. Here's the way I think Henry Skugel would would state the main point of his book. True religion, which is a 17th and 18th century way of talking about Christianity. True religion is an inner, vital Principle of divine life, as opposed to an external constrained thing, whether through law or bribery or threatenings, 
It's an inner, vital principle of divine life. It is the life of God in the soul of man, giving rise to a different life. That's the way he would say it. How would you say it? Here's the way I would say it. Becoming a Christian is more like a larva becoming a butterfly than like a Republican becoming a Democrat. Now, that's a very wonderful and true analogy and a very dangerous and misleading analogy. The wonderful thing is this. Being a Christian really does compare to not being a Christian like flying in a garden compares to lying in a cocoon. That's right. That's true. That's not misleading. When the divine command comes to a butterfly, thou shalt fly. There's no guilt, no burden, no oppression, no discouragement. He just flies. He just does what he was made to do and praises the grace of God with every flap of his golden black wings. That's what Henry Skugel means by a divine, quickening, vital principle in the heart. The life of God from within, enabling the flying without. But when the word of God comes to the larva, thou shalt fly. He's got three possibilities, this larva does. Three ways to respond to that command. Number one, he could say, sinking in despair, I can't fly and there's no hope for me. Or third, he could say, soaring in self-deceit, I am flying. Look, there's the ground way down there. I'm up here in the branches. Lay off. Or third, the larva could say with St. Augustine, command what you will and grant what you command. Make me to become a butterfly. The true and wonderful thing about this analogy between making a larva a butterfly and making a non-Christian a Christian is that it highlights the need for new birth. The miracle of regeneration. Becoming a Christian 
is not like changing your ideas about politics. You can change every single one of your ideas about Christianity so that they line up exactly right with God's and go to hell. Changing ideas is not conversion. Conversion happens through the aroma of the garden where butterflies fly, becoming so compelling that you are metamorphosed out of a larva into a butterfly. There's something terrible about this analogy and misleading. It could give the impression that the disciplines study and the mental effort and thought and reflection and the act of choice which is involved in changing your political philosophy has no place in the metamorphosis from a non-Christian to a Christian, and that's dead wrong. The miracle of spiritual metamorphosis from a non-Christian to a Christian is not like the silent, unconscious, chemical processes inside an isolated cocoon with no influences from without. It's not like that. Rather, every time there is a metamorphosis from a non-Christian to a Christian, it is owing to the conscious consideration of truth by the larva. And never without it. Everywhere in the Bible, men and women, larva-like men and women, are addressed and spoken to with entreaties, summonings, admonitions, exhortations, commands, threats, promises, so that they would fly. Get up and fly. Why? Why are larva-like men and women addressed like that in Scripture? Here's the answer as I understand it. Step number one in the answer goes like this. The beauties and the aromas of the garden where butterflies fly Those beauties and those aromas are the perfections of God. That's step number one. Step number two. God's perfections are glorified most when the non-Christian larva is metamorphosed into the Christian butterfly by the compelling power of the truth and beauty of those flowers of perfection in that garden. Step number three. The only way larvae 
perceive and cherish the truth and the beauty of the perfections of God are with the human mind and the human will. Conclusion. Step four. Therefore, every metamorphosis of a non-Christian into a Christian that glorifies God will result from the exhibition of the beauty and the truth of God in the proclamation of the gospel to the mind and the will of larva-like men and women, and never without it. If conversion were simply a kind of chemical process done in abstraction from what a human knows or feels, how would God, the gardener, and the flowers of his perfections get any glory from that when it wouldn't be they filling the mind that draws a man and woman out to Christ? It wouldn't get any glory. It would be a machine. So, it is a wonderful analogy. It is true. Becoming a Christian is like a metamorphosis from a larva to a butterfly so that when the command to, to fly spiritually comes, we just spread our wings and fly. That's what a Christian is. But it's a terribly misleading analogy. If it were to give anybody the impression that the metamorphosis from being a larva-like non-Christian with no spiritual tastes at all to a butterfly-like Christian comes about without any study or thought or appeal to the will, I would be wrong, dead wrong. And therefore, I hope nobody in this church concludes that since God is sovereign and must create out of larvae, Flying butterflies. Therefore, you don't need a witness at work. You don't need to plead with your children or your dying mother or father. You just need to wait on God. No! God only saves through the Word of God in the mouth of His people. Or written in a book. You must be involved in the creation of butterflies. How does it happen? Where does that participation in the divine life of flying come from? Skugel says faith is the taproot. He calls it the root of the divine life that goes down and draws up God in the soul. And he defines faith in a way that I regard as beautiful, magnificent, and profound on page 46. Here's his definition. It's a definition that almost nobody today uses. Lest they read Jonathan Edwards and people who have written at least 250 years ago. See if you don't agree with it, however. Faith, he says, is, quote, 
a feeling persuasion of spiritual things, close quote. A feeling persuasion of spiritual things. Faith is not merely a feeling. Faith is not merely a persuasion. That's what needs to be emphasized today in our evangelistic atmosphere. It is not a mere decision. It is not a mere choice. It is not a mere persuasion. You do not get saved by a decision. Merely. You get saved by a feeling persuasion of spiritual things. In another place, he says, faith is to the spiritual world, the divine world of holy things, what the tongue and taste buds are to honey or the sweetness of honey. Nobody without this gift of faith will look upon the face of Jesus Christ and see anything ravishing and attractive. They'll just look on him and blank. Of course, some authority might say, now you accept him, you believe. And they say, okay, 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 I don't want to go to hell, I'll, I'll accept him. That's not conversion and it's not a Christian that results. Saving faith is a feeling persuasion. It is a being persuaded. Hence the word. It is a felt persuasion, hence the Spirit and the work of God. Where does that faith come from? The Bible says, Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. So, what I want to do in the remaining time that we have, 10 or 12 minutes, is to exhibit some truth and beauty concerning the life of God in the soul of man from the Word of God. All I know to do as a preacher to get sinners saved and saints edified is to exhibit truth for the mind, and beauty for the heart from the Word of God. If that doesn't do it, I can't do it. Let's go to Romans 8, verse 9. And I'll show you why I even am talking about the life of God in the soul of man. It's not because Schugel is my Bible. It's because Schugel is so biblical. Look at verse 9. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. If the Spirit of God really dwells in you. That's all I mean. That's all Schugel means by the life of God in the soul of man. The Spirit of God really dwells in you. Can you say that about yourself this morning? There isn't any more important thing to say about yourself than yes, the Spirit of the Almighty dwells within me. You're not a Christian if you, if it's not true. This, this text says, 
That's what Skugel means by the life of God in the soul of man. And so what I want to do is unfold three effects, or maybe we should say dimensions, of the life of God in the soul of man. There are at least 13 we could talk about in this text that I jotted down in preparing for this sermon and just for, for pressure of time had to just knock out uh, all the rest. Three of them. Here's number one. The life of God in the soul of man brings about a new relationship to Christ and to God. Verse 9. Anyone, this is at the end of verse 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, and notice he just uses Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ interchangeably. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so the first thing I want to say that results from the life of God in the soul of man is that you are made to belong to Jesus. If you have the Spirit of God in you this morning, you belong to Jesus. You're His property and His treasure. And you ought to have a plaque on your wall, if not at home in your mind, I belong to Jesus. Or big, big letters written across your sweatshirt when you jog, property of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that comes about. When the Holy Spirit, the life of God, dwells in your soul, He makes you over to Jesus Christ. You are not your own anymore. You were bought with a price. You are Christ's. The second half of this first point is that you have a new relationship not only to Christ as His treasure and possession, but to the Father as a child. Verses 14 and 15 are so wonderful. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit Himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Spirit of God is the spirit of adoption. When the life of God comes into the soul of man, an adoptive transaction happens. You are adopted into the family of God and made a child of God. But I am a little bit frustrated by the analogy of adoption. As precious as an adopted child is, and as much in our own relationships, that child can be folded into our hearts as much as a natural-born child. To belong to God by the act of the Holy Spirit is more than that because what happens is that when the Spirit comes, He imparts the nature of God, the miracle as though we had been begotten of God. That's why the analogy of new birth is used in 1 John 3. We have the seed of God within us. We're not merely adopted children. We have the nature of our Father within us. And so there is a union between father and child that is incredibly profound and deep if the Spirit of God dwells in you this morning. You are tied up with your Father by a kind of spiritual blood relation that is unbreakable. When the Spirit dwells within you, He makes you over as a child to the Father and becomes the seal of that adoption forever and ever. That's the first thing. Namely, when the life of God comes into the soul of man, two new relationships emerge. We are the possession and treasure of Christ, and we are the child of God by nature. 
as well as adoption. Second, the life of God in the soul of man brings a new leadership, new leadership into the life of the Christian. Verse 14, all who are led, that's, the, that's where I'm getting the word leadership, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So what marks every son of God in whom the Spirit dwells? A new leadership. Who leads your life? If you're a Christian, the Spirit leads your life. I'll say it again. This verse says, if you are a Christian, the Spirit leads your life. If you are not a Christian, you lead your life. Or the flesh, as he says in verses 4 through uh, 8, lead your life. So a new leadership comes into your life when the life of God enters the soul of man. But notice what kind of leadership it is here in the context. It, it isn't the leadership of a slaveholder to a slave, is it? You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. What is it? What kind of leadership is it? It's the leadership of Schugel's divine, vital, inner, motivating, energizing principle within. Not whips and slashes and coercions from without. The Holy Spirit leads us by imparting the love of divine things to us. His nature is made over to us so that we delight in what the Spirit delights in. And we always follow our delights. You always do what you want to do most. The miracle of conversion is that your wants are made new according to the Spirit and your Father. The Spirit leads, you might say, to use another analogy, by implanting a kind of homing instinct for heaven. Like a pigeon. If you don't mind calling yourself a pigeon, I hate pigeons. They're sort of dirty. But I just pretend I'm a pigeon this morning. And if I'm a pigeon... Conversion means being given a homing device for heaven. So just, there's something inside me that just, I, the narrow path that leads to heaven, I'm just kind of cruising on, on, on automatic control, although all these analogies have problems, don't they? Or try this one. The leadership of the Spirit is so complete and yet my response and life under the leadership of this kind of, of spirit is so free that in Galatians 5, verse 22, the product of his leadership in my life is called what? Fruit. Fruit. Why? Not work. Not the work of the flesh, but fruit. Why? What's so great about this word fruit? Well... Here I am, a tree, and if I'm an apple tree, there is no effort to produce apples, just olives. I really work to try to produce olives, and I'll fail every time. And if God came to me with the command, produce olives, I'd be done for. But suppose the Christian is an apple tree. God makes the tree good. As Jesus says, and the, the fruit will be apples. And it's not hard for an apple tree to produce apples. 
And that's why we're free. And that leads me to the last thing. When the life of God comes into the soul of man, there's not only a new relationship to the Son and the Father, not only a new leadership, but a new freedom. Verse 2. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free. Free! 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 From the law of sin and death. I love this verse. I love this passage. Christians, however, notice, are not lawless. doesn't say there's no law. It says the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus freed me from another law. There's a law of liberty in this verse. Jane talks about it. But it's so different. Isn't it so different from the law that was engraved on stone at Mount Sinai that came to us and said, do, 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 and didn't give us the power to do. Weak as it was through the flesh, verse 3. So what's this new law that's called the law of the spirit of life? Here's what I think it is. I think the law of the spirit of life is the Holy Spirit writing the mind of God upon our hearts so that we love to do His will. It's the new covenant. The liberating law that comes with its own power to make it happen and frees us from any other constraining law that kills because there's no power to do, no no butterfly metamorphosis so that the command to fly doesn't kill. The law comes with power and so it's life for us. And it frees. Now, I'm going to close by trying to solve a problem that Paul ran into here. God looks like a schizophrenic at this point if you're alert to the flow of the thought in Romans. We don't want a schizophrenic God. can't worship a schizophrenic God with split personality contradicting himself. Here's the schizophrenia that appears. It's been so plain in this book that God hates sin and that the wages of sin is eternal death and that his wrath is poured out against all ungodliness and wickedness of man. And yet here in verse 2, the pure, unsullied, Holy Spirit of God is coming into the jail where men are justly sentenced by God the judge and He's stealing them from the judge and taking the chains off of their life and taking away the sentence God had passed and running away with them and God is split. You can't worship a split God. The Trinity fighting each other one sentencing the hell, the other stripping the chains off and getting him out of the electric chair. You can't worship a God like that. Now, if that sounds artificial to you, you haven't gotten inside the mind of Paul yet. He wrestled with this schizophrenia, something terrible. And his solution is found in verse 3. Let's read it. For God has done... What the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, here's what I picture. In eternity, the Trinity is consulting about the salvation of sinners. And the Father conceives a plan. And He turns to His Son first. And He makes a pact with His Son. Will you stand in the stead of ungodly sinners and let me kill you for them? Yes, I will. Having thus made acquittal from all eternity in his own mind for his people and removing their guilt, he now, only now, turns to his spirit and says, Blessed Holy Spirit of mine, will you go and invade the lives of sinners and on the basis of my finished work of atonement through the Son, canceling all their sin, not fearing that you are at cross purposes with me at all in my judgment, will you invade their lives and take the chains off of their back and free them from sin, cause them to walk in my statutes and bring them to glory? I will. I hope that you love the conspiracy of the Trinity to save your soul. I hope that you praise the eternal plans of God the Father, the self-sacrificing death of the Son whereby all your sins were canceled and the incredible condescension of the Holy Spirit who never once broached unholiness to take up residence in your miserable body. This is incredible. What a redemption. What a redemption. Don't resist the Holy Spirit this morning. Don't quench the Spirit of God coming into your life to purify you and take the sin out of your life and the chains of it off your back. You know why the Holy Spirit is grieved when we resist Him and press against His sanctifying influences? I think the main reason the Holy Spirit is grieved is because he loves Jesus so much. And whenever you resist the Holy Spirit, you belittle the blood of Jesus. Because the blood of Jesus was the payment made by Jesus and the Father to free the Spirit, to invade your life and liberate you from sin. If you hired somebody, a team of workers, to come clean your living room for $10,000 one afternoon, you pay them $10,000 to vacuum the floor and dust and chamois the mirror. And then as they came in there to work, you walked outside through the mud and you came in and just walked around behind them, just tracking dirty and all over the place. And every time they shammied the mirror, you went, put your fingerprints all over the place. You, you know what somebody would say if they looked at you? They'd say, good night. You, you treat money like it had no value at all. Don't treat the blood of Jesus that way. Jesus shed His blood for one reason. 
so that there'd be no schizophrenia in the Godhead when the Holy Spirit was sent into your life to take the chains of sin off of you. Don't hold on to those chains.